0: What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Jeremy Fain. Jeremy is the CEO and co-founder of Cognitive. With over 20 years of interactive experience across agency, publisher, and ad tech management, Jeremy led North American accounts for Rubicon Project before founding Cognitive. At Rubicon Project, Jeremy was responsible for global market success of over 400 media companies and 500 demand partners through real-time bidding, new product development, and other revenue strategies, ensuring interactive buyers and sellers could take full advantage of automated transactions. Prior to Rubicon project, Jeremy served as director of network solutions for CBS Interactive. With oversight of 30 million plus PL, Jeremy was responsible for development, execution, and management of data-driven solutions across CBS Interactive's network of branding sites, including audience targeting, private exchange, and custom audience solutions. Prior to CBS, Jeremy served as vice president of industry services for the IAB, where he shaped interactive industry policy standards and best practices, such as the first VAST standard and the TC and CS 3.0, by working on a daily basis with all of the major media companies, as well as all agency holding companies. Jeremy Fain attended Yale University, where he graduated with a BS in electrical engineering and Columbia Business School, where he received his MBA. Welcome, Jeremy, so good to see you. Great
1: to see you, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, okay, we're gonna start with some rapid fire given you are in New York. I'm curious, I, have, I used to live there, but like what's your favorite New York City restaurant right now?
1: Uh, I The place I eat the most is this place called Tang Pavilion, it's Shanghai food. I'm half Chinese, my family's from Shanghai. And so there's, it's sort of a special type of Chinese food. So Tang Pavilion in Midtown, it's close to my house.
0: Okay. Love it. Okay. Swimmer. Are you backstroke, breaststroke, butterfly, or free?
1: Sprint freestyle. As I like to say, all the glory, none of the work. And swimmers (laughs) will understand what I'm talking about.
0: I I swam growing up. So I do get that. And I was butterfly of all things. So that's all the work, all of the pain and the big shoulders trying to get rid of those. Um, What is the best thing that you have read or listened to or watched I guess, during this period, over the last couple of years? <laughs> <laughs> We're all doing a lot of that. I feel like we, you know, people are like, I binged. I'm still binging, which is
1: um, sad. There's so much good television on. I'll pull out Bosch. I'll choose Bosch. Uh, over the last few years, Amazon has had the show. It's based on books. Um, Tolliver, whatever Welliver, Tolliver, whatever his name is, he's great. So I've really liked Bosch on Amazon. It's a really good sort of cop uh, cop drama set in L.A. Oh, I and
0: love so cop drama. We're all,
1: we're all uh, you know, locked up in COVID. It was warm and sunny and and nice.
0: Nice. Okay, Bosch. I got it on my list. Is there a quote or a way of describing the way you live?
1: My favorite quote is this quote that technically is from Arthur O'Shaughnessy in some poem that he wrote, but it was spoken by Willy Wonka in uh, the original uh, Chocolate Factory movie. And it goes something, I'll paraphrase it because uh, it's, it's a little early. It's, uh, we are the music makers, we are the dreamers of dreams. And that is sort of what I think about life. I think that we're here to create, make interesting things and have a great time
0: you seem like you've lived a pretty idyllic life and gone after your dreams in that exact way that you described. So I don't know what age you were when you discovered that quote, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, Okay.
1: I like to have fun.
0: Yeah, you are fun. What are some words used to describe you as a leader or your leadership style?
1: Uh, Fun, uh, high expectations, work hard, play hard. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm guessing it's you're an empath model.
0: too, that you really like, I, I get a caretaker vibe from you, like that you actually some, truly some care about your people. Me,
1: some people who work for me would say that and some people would not.
0: <laughs> well, that's a that's a sign. I mean, you have to make tough decisions sometimes, right? You gotta be tough. I think
1: all of my friends would say that. I think that as a, uh, I think, you know, most of the people you have on the show will probably admit that being a boss and then being the CEO is uh, a lot harder than being a good friend.
0: Oh, yeah. Of <clears throat> course. We have to make tough decisions that, I mean, the worst part is ever letting people go or even giving yeah. tough feedback, I think is something that's like a muscle skill that you learn over time. How to how to give, like, I call it the velvet hammer. Like, you know, yes. be strong, but give a little warmth within that. Um, okay, Jeremy, what's your biggest pet peeve? <sighs>
1: um i'm a new yorker so slow walkers are pretty annoying i don't know what to say about that
0: what do you think when you come to seattle you've got your office in bellevue so like people walk slowly here and they stand at the stoplight even when there's no cars it drives me well i'll say my
1: biggest pet peeve in bellevue is the length of the stoplights and the lack of ability to cross the street the it's walk ridiculous. sign comes on every like four minutes and it yeah. is a huge waste of my time as a sort of native New Yorker now.
0: I couldn't agree more. I'm not a native New Yorker, but I lived there, as you know, for many, many years. And when I moved back, people are like, stop, stop, you're going to get hit. I'm like, there are no freaking cars. Right. Walk.
1: I know. They just wait. There's nothing happening. And it's just yeah, green forever.
0: Yeah. I'm curious about Uh, that. Is that nature versus nurture? Like, I think my, my nature is to be kind of impatient and then you get nurtured. Like, do people just get conditioned to stand there? I don't get it. I agree.
1: (laughs) Well, for me, it's all about efficiency of time usage. Like that's something that I learned very young that I'm a, I'm a functional um, I'm functional, but I really enjoy doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, But in order for me to do nothing, I need to get all of my stuff done. There's the functional side. I
0: think we're very similar.
1: Yeah. So I don't want to spend more time than it takes to get from point A to point B. Yeah. I'm not going to go slowly. I'm going to get there as quickly as I can.
0: You were raised in Maryland, correct?
1: I was raised in Maryland Mm -hmm. in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is a pretty large suburb of Washington, D.C. So there's different parts of Maryland. There's Baltimore. There's uh, Western Maryland, but I'm part of the DC metro area.
0: Yeah. Tell me about your childhood. I know that you, um, got into technology at a young age and went to a STEM school, but like, is that something that's common there or your parents kind of pushed you and like, who was guiding you through all of this?
1: Uh, so, so I'll give full credit to my mother to where I have sort of turned out from an education perspective and all that. I mean, she, you know, we're we're very lucky to have parents who are involved in our educational process. You know, a lot of people don't have that, um, that luxury. And my mom, uh, when I was young, decided to stay at home and take care of us uh, until my sister, my younger sister was in kindergarten. I was eight. But throughout that, she really, uh, was trying to figure out what was best for me, because frankly, the schools that she sent me to were not good fits when I was young, I actually went to three elementary schools, so I went to mm-hmm. a, um, I went to a French immersion school first, which was in my neighborhood, um, and I lived in Montgomery County, Montgomery County, historically has had very good uh, schools uh, it's very, it's sort of like a part of their value system in the county. So they're very well funded and they have a lot of different kinds of diverse programs. So I was at a French immersion school, but I was getting in trouble a lot because yeah. uh, it was, it was, ai don't know. I was, I was too moving stri- It was probably faster. too strict and you were moving. It was, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was a hyperactive child definitely, yeah. but it was, um, it was, I was bored my mom yeah. would say. And I think yeah. that was probably right. So I was well, good I for her to recognize time. it, right? Yeah. So she tried, she got me into a different school. that was not French immersion. I joked that she, she made me move because I could speak French fluently, but I couldn't speak English, you know? So, uh, uh, because <laughs> do you, back still then, speak, those do you still speak French. No, I, 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 I'm terrible. You at lost French it by now. the time you were nine. <laughs> yeah. But by second grade, I was pretty good at it, but it was the, I don't think they do that anymore, but, the, um, Immersion schools used to um, be all day French, like all day the language. And so we didn't speak English or read English at all, all day in school. And I think they try to split it up a little bit more now, which I think is smart because my writing was terrible. My English writing was terrible. And all right. So anyway, I moved to another school and it had a gifted and talented program, uh, which was great, but there was still another sort of magnet school that I could test into, I did that in fifth grade. And, you know, we can fast, we can, you know, then I, I met my actual founders in that. Yeah. In that school. Wait, so you that met your founders school.
0: So you met your two founders in fifth grade, um, both of your co-founders, Aaron and Mark. And what would your other fifth grade friends say? I'm sure you're in touch with some of them about the fact that the three of you, combined efforts, like which one of you was most likely to kind of pursue entrepreneurial endeavors?
1: Uh, well, as we grew up, it was clearly Mark. Mark, it was was definitely the biggest risk taker. You know, I think part of being an entrepreneur, you have to have a high risk tolerance. You have to be really willing to just throw it all into the wind and, and go all in. Um, I actually don't have that high risk tolerance. I, I'm more of the I'm more of the guy who likes to gamble at games that I know the odds are decent mm-hmm. and that if I play the game well and it's still gambling, but I, I like to, I like to mitigate my risk. I, I'm a mitigation person. Mm-hmm. I think that, that, you know, talking to some of my advisors, my uh, uh, more experienced CEO advisors, they tell me that one of the things a CEO really needs to be good at is risk mitigation. That is literally the CEO's job. So I think I'm well, really that, good. Well, that. that's good,
0: but it, you know, some people have the misperception, or maybe it is correct, that the foundation of having you know electrical engineering from Yale, consulting background, Columbia MBA would be something that would increase the odds of success. So maybe the risk mitigation uh, thing makes sense to people to to you from the inside, but from the outside, I'm like, oh no, I would bet on this horse, like you know, and I don't know Aaron and Mark, but if I just met you, I'd be like, this guy's kind of got the unicorn factor. So I'm going to give him some money if I was an investor, oh, you know, and your idea. I mean, you're solving a problem that we, we're going to get into with cognitive. Yeah. Um, but so you generally speaking had a pretty good childhood. Did you have a sense that you knew what you wanted to be when you grew up?
1: Yeah. So the funny, the funny story is that Aaron, Mark and I, we met in fifth grade and thank, thanks to my mom getting me into the school, which fed into the magnet middle school, which fed into the magnet high school. Um, and this was in Montgomery County, this, this high school called Montgomery Blair High School. And it has a magnet inside the high school. And it was just a hundred of the, of the highest uh, math and science scores in the, in the county. And we were all together and we all went through. And then, so if you asked actually some of our friends, who are also our investors because they've all grown up and done other things. Um, I think that they they wouldn't be that surprised that the three of us are doing something together because we were, were pretty good friends. And we actually talked about starting a company way back in the day, but I think oh, because- Oh, I love that. Yeah, because, I mean, Aaron went to Stanford. I went to Yale. Mark had three scholarships to Maryland. It was sort of like, oh, we're going to college. See you later. Yeah, and we're all going to college for different reasons. I was going to swim and um, and be an electrical engineer, and because uh, I'd already done, we'd all done coding forever. We're all coders. Mark really loved coding, um, but also was in like ROTC, and, and Maryland had a ROTC program, and he wanted to do that.
0: What's
1: what's ROTC? Do I, I know oh, what
0: that uh, is? ROTC. ROTC oh ROTC. ROTC. I've never heard. I guess Officer I that's probably training. Oh wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So
1: he wanted to be in the air force Uh, that he didn't end up doing that, but
0: that's one of the reasons. What what made you decide? I'm always just curious how people make decisions. So you went to Yale and then did, uh, did you get recruited into consulting? I guess straight out of Yale. Is that like the typical, like investment banking or consulting? Yeah.
1: So (laughs) (laughs) the story I tell is that my parents told me that I couldn't come back home. I needed to get a job. And when you go to an Ivy league school, it's nice. And it's not nice in a way that there's heavy recruiting early on in your career there for either consulting or banking. Um, and things have changed a little bit. Uh, but, it, you know, generally speaking, yeah. The there's a playbook for sure. Yeah. There's a playbook of like law, law school, med school, PhD program. Yeah. Consulting, MBA, banking. Yeah. The whole deal. Yeah. And I, uh, being, I I feel like I was I was a I have a pretty I like to think creative side, and I just was not like sort of a, an investment banker type. Um, doing the same thing over and over again was not that interesting to me. I really enjoyed consulting. So my junior year, between junior and senior year, my rising senior summer, I got a job consulting with Price Waterhouse Coopers consulting, and which at the time was. Uh, I sort of IT consulting but this was the beginning. Yeah, I was going to say at this least was... you
0: got to consult into IT versus like you know some other industry.
1: Yeah, so this was the beginning, really the beginning of the commercial internet was like 1995 96. So this was right when companies needed advice understanding the internet. And that's really the beginning of my career was yeah. helping blue chip companies understand the internet. And that's something that I got to learn at Blair because we're inside the Beltway and we, um, our program was integrated with the internet before the internet became public, uh, with NIH and army research labs where I did my science project and things like that.
0: Interesting. So did you feel that it was necessary and what advice would you give others? Um, I guess who are considering getting an MBA, like what, what kind of, Led to that
1: decision right. to pursue that. Well, for me, yeah, and I, so so to lead back to this sort of risk adverse, you know, this mitigation, I I knew early on that I really liked business. I run a little snack bar at my pool with my friend. Oh, ben. I love it. Yeah, we called it Ben and Jeremy's, which everyone yeah. thought was hilarious. Um, I liked that. I liked coming up with ideas, selling things, and making money. I love that. Yeah, uh, but. I'm also sort of, I have this this risk mitigation sort of slant to me. So as I got out of school, I wanted to learn how to do it right. I didn't want to just have, Hey, I have an idea and I'm going to go and make a business. I have no right. idea how to do that, but I'm going to, there's a lot of that that goes around. Oh, for sure. Especially, there's a lot of that that goes around. I think so, a lot of
0: it in Silicon Valley for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm just not that kind of person. I want to make educated decisions. So, I took my career in a, in a direction where I wanted to learn the business of the, of how the internet was affecting blue chip companies and maybe, maybe do something with that. But what happened was I found myself pigeonholed because of my tech background on the tech side of the business decisions. And that's why I went to business school. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it was a very, my career is this weird sort of half luck, half, uh, uh uh, planned out idea of, hey, yeah. you know, if I want to be a CEO or or really run a good company, I need to have the business side of things, which I didn't get in college. Um, I only got the the science and tech side. So I yeah. always knew I wanted to be the business side of tech, but I only had one side of that. So that's why I went to business school.
0: So um then you mm. pursued, then you kind of didn't go back into consulting and pursued Lab, CBS, Rubicon. Which of those companies was kind of, I guess... Um, your most formative years as far as learning?
1: So for me, the, the, the right out of business school where I learned the most was at the Interactive Advertising Bureau, which is the trade organization that represents-
0: Oh, I said media, lab, I meant IAB, yeah.
1: Yeah, media companies. And that was right after business school. And it was this weird thing where I was interviewing with Silicon Valley tech companies. And then this opportunity came along in New York City, which I really wanted to be. I wanted to be a little closer to my, my family, um, being Chinese, my grandmother was still living with us when I was, uh, and she was like 90 at the time. And I just didn't think she was going to last very long, but she lasted another 10 years. So that's another oh, story. Oh, wow.
0: So you got I, good I, genes. I
1: to, Yeah, I wanted to stay in um, New York and I got this opportunity to basically be a consultant to the industry. So that's really what the IAB was for me. I got to consult all of the media companies and then solve problems for the entire industry with the help of all the media companies. There's a lot, there were a lot of um, uh, barriers and complications and non-standardization in internet advertising back in the early two thousands. And it was, it was retarding the growth of the industry. It was very hard to buy massive amounts of advertising. And so we fixed all those things in those three and four years. And, and, and that was really, great. Cause I got to fix these sort of structural problems in the internet advertising industry. And now I, I can see the fruit of those labors, Yeah, which is, which is really great.
0: <clears throat> so these companies that you were at, um, I guess, along the way you were thinking about learning and changing um, the trajectory of some of these media companies, but were you also paying attention to the culture? I mean, I know that that's a big topic these days, but back then, were you paying attention to like, I want to kind of replicate these things or this makes me feel more engaged in this company.
1: It's a funny thing because I really even though I went to business school, I didn't believe in reading business books, you know, like good to great and all these things I thought, mm. you know, uh, the, I could just figure it out myself. But and I think for, through osmosis in my career path, I started at PwC, which honestly <sighs> it wasn't for me. It was very regimented. Um, it was not creative mm-hmm. and uh it was it was sort of like the cold porridge and then yeah. I went to this
0: I like that the cold porridge. Months. A lot of people yeah. I talked to in consulting or you know who have had that background are like I just didn't want to be the people that were like me when I grew up. Like I didn't I looked at the partners and I was like, I don't yeah. want to be that. Yeah. Yeah, well, cold I mean, the porridge. Partners, I like it.
1: definitely did. I looked at the partners and said they travel more than I do which was right. like four days a week. Right. And I'm like, that's not what I want. But also it was just, it was too regimented for me. So then I go to a startup that was an, like at the angel stage and five people on the edge of 2000, 2001, which was like the disaster of the, the internet <laughs> bubble.com crash. And that was total chaos and no process and no culture. And, then I ended up at Digitas, which was an amazing place for me. The way I like to describe Digitas back in the early 2000s was it was an independent agency, but public. It was a digital full service agency, which was pretty new at the time. It was only taking blue chip clients because it was run by very responsible senior agency execs, but it was staffed by young internet sort of natives like myself. So we had a it was a great sort of company culture where, the leadership wasn't letting us do crazy things like Razorfish was, which went bankrupt because all they did was dot com companies. And but we were bringing the cool new internet culture to American Express and HBO and New York Times and things like that. So that was really cool.
0: Oh, cool! Are, are you still friends? I'm guessing with a lot of people that you worked with there because that's probably also a fun culture.
1: Yeah, we had a great time, and it was it was it was a really good culture. Now. As a leader, though, and and with an ability to create culture, I did not really understand that until I got to Rubicon Project, where I was given the reins um, of three separate teams that needed to come together. And it was a very sort of chaotic culture at the time. It It was a startup that had been very successful, but had grown. It was still operating like a startup, but it was 150 people. Mm, it was I get that. almost a global company. So, so that was an interesting challenge for me because I was actually brought in to sort of take that level of maturity up and organize it and take it into a, a sort of uh, just a more mature state. And up until that point, I hadn't run that many people as a manager. Um, and I, was, I had a really hard time of it. It was really hard. We had a really sort of tough culture between the teams. They didn't like each other. And I actually had to read business books. I was like, I actually have no idea what I'm doing. And yeah. um, from that, I really gained a better understanding of what, how important culture was, what culture I wanted the group to be and to sort of set that forward.
0: Mm. How, did, how would you define really that, successful. Jeremy? Like when you say you wanted to set the culture, what, what was your like North Star? What book I guess helped?
1: Um, you know, the, the books that are honestly, the older books like Good to Great, Uh, were really pretty formative because they really talk about high performance teams. I mean, ultimately, that's what almost all, in my my opinion, good business books are about. How do you get the most and the best out of your people? And it's not working them the hardest. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not these things that were the old school way of doing business. It's Mm -hmm. give them you know, and net, the net, actually, one of the other things about culture was the Netflix um, uh,
0: the case PowerPoint study.
1: presentation. Yeah. yeah, that they put out that they made public that was basically like, hey, you know, if you don't, we have a culture, if you don't like this culture, well, thank you very much. Here's your severance. We're You're great, but it, you're just not right for us. Hiring fully formed adults, this idea that you we're not going to track your vacation, you know, you got to get, you got to get your stuff done. So this idea of hiring fully formed adults has, has been a big improvement in my life as a leader and manager of a culture, mm-hmm. because once you get fully formed adults in who are able to take care of themselves and you don't have, you're not supposed to be looking over their shoulder every day, right. you get a lot more creativity. You get a lot more productivity. You get a lot more happy people and, and you can really build a family around that idea. There's, there's a lot more to it for us at cognitive, but um but I think those are the starting blocks, like fully yeah. formed adults, this idea. that Netflix That's a great, that's a great place to
0: start. And then you, I think maybe giving a lot of transparency is helpful. And then somehow setting a expectation of accountability. Like, listen, I don't want to have to look over your shoulders, so just be right. accountable. It's like kind of a given that that's a value, <clears> but um, to kind of put it out there, I think is like, that's something that's not a fireable offense, but like you need to be accountable and own your shit. Like that's the only way, that's the only way to move forward.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the Netflix, the Netflix thing changed. I mean, it did not I believe in developing people. I think that if you, your people are definitely your most important asset. Uh, It's hard to replace them. It's expensive to replace them. So you have to first pick correctly. You have to be good at selection, but if, if something happens and it's not right, you you need to make that decision quickly. Uh, If the person can't um, be be performance managed, I guess.
0: Right, turn for, or even like turn from an A minus to an A to an A plus. Like if they're not like able to get feedback and able to develop, that makes sense. So you talked about, um, I guess, picking right. I think it's also crucial to pick right co-founders and the baseline for the three of you is friendship. But how did you guys, I guess, um, discover or realize how you would complement one another as far as your skill sets? Like, who were you in the role? Who was Aaron? Who was Mark? And how did you decide to put your friendship at risk, frankly, and go to business together?
1: Yeah, so that was the easiest part for us, honestly, because... Uh, we grew up so you know there's a it's different when you go to school every day together since you're 10 through your are 18 it's like eight years but it's it's like 100 years you know everything is accelerated you go through ups and downs and lessons and rights and boyfriend girlfriend problems and all these things yeah and uh and so we sort of felt like we knew how to handle each other uh, interpersonally Uh, we knew each other so deeply that that was going to be very helpful for us uh, versus being sort of professional friends or something like that. Um, So we each knew that. And then also what was easy was that we really had non, we have complementary but not overlapping skill sets. We all speak the language of sort of engineering and coding. So, so I understand basically what Mark is saying. I understand what Aaron's saying. Mark understands what Aaron's saying, but Aaron is the scientist. He's the one that knows everything about neural networks and he is the uh, expert at our deep learning AI. So he's our chief science officer. Mark has, has, and Aaron went, he did coding for a while after Stanford, but then went off and got a PhD at MIT in neuroscience and has really been a scientist, okay? Mark has always been a coder. He was an entrepreneur. He started his own companies. He went back to school after a while. He, he's always been a coder and then has, has become the mature CTO that we really needed over his career. And then finally, for me, I left coding behind a long time ago, uh, but our, our background was really strong at Montgomery Blair High School and in college. So um, I understand the technology well enough, but I really have focused myself on business, which Aaron and Mark do not want to do. Yeah. So so we really have complementary. That's, actually, that's actually a
0: perfect um, overlap. And so did yeah. you come up with the idea and then tap them or the three of you sat around and then tried to come up with an idea? Like how did the birthing story of cognitive come to be?
1: So Mark and I had always kept in touch about our little ideas here and there because we really, Mark's really entrepreneurial and I always loved, wanted to be entrepreneurial. Um, But then finally we got to our late thirties and in our careers, we're all in the right place. Mark and I had an idea we, we were ready to go and Mark was like, we have to call Aaron and talk to him about it. We called Aaron, Aaron told us that was a stupid idea and that we should do this idea instead. And that idea ended up being cognitive, which is deep learning, uh, custom algorithms to predict consumer behavior, and then use that for advertising to help clients, our, our advertiser marketer brands, place their ads in front of people at the right time in the right place, to more efficiently sell their wares, uh, g- get their brand out there, etc., mm-hmm. and using this new technology called deep learning to do it, and that was Aaron's idea in the end.
0: And so, when I'm getting targeted ads, does cognitive play a role in that? How does it all work? How does deep learning and yeah. advertising work?
1: So there's a lot of you know talk about Facebook doing that. You know, uh, you're talking about something and then you see an ad on Facebook. Um, I don't, I've don't. i never heard that there's anybody that said that that actually happens, but I, I'm sure it does. I've seen too many anecdotal evidence on that. But what they do really in the background is what we do. What well, we do it off of Facebook and outside of Amazon. Facebook and Amazon and Google have invested a lot in deep learning. So deep learning without getting into the nitty gritty of it is is what has powered most of the innovation in computing in the last 7 to 10 years so Siri Alexa self-driving cars those are all deep learning technologies and if you remember as you know we are not little kids right now we remember when you couldn't do any of those things uh cars could not self-drive computers could not see really well it was all science fiction you couldn't talk to a computer that didn't ha- exist and then overnight it all was happening yeah it's crazy so, yeah like elon musk and spacex those rockets they land because of deep learning they the mars rover the most recent mars rover landed because of deep learning it's it's just advanced the intuition of computers um, so much, so that is the basis for what we use in advertising now for us to find the right person uh, at the right time that's actually going to convert. A lot of the time, you're seeing companies target retargeting you. They're spamming you. They're like just kind of, just spamming you, spamming you, spamming you because you went to a site, but you don't convert. You actually don't buy that thing. It's better then guessing wildly because you've shown some interest in that that brand or or product, but the the conversion rates are still really low. So for us, that's an example of where we can help an advertiser spend their money more effectively is figuring out who's really interested in in the products and spend money on those people and not spam just everybody uh, who comes to a site. That's just one example of how we can do it.
0: Interesting. And how did you end up funding the business?
1: So that's an interesting story because we started in 2015, and in 2015, ad tech was in the dump uh, yes. from uh, from a VC perspective, and so we knew we had a great team. Okay, so there's uh, a lot of the time, especially in Silicon Valley, it's a twenty something young person who has an idea to start a company Uh, for us. We were all in our mid to late thirties. We had a lot of management experience. So we had a great founding management team that really a lot of VCs loved and we had deep learning, but we had advertising on, on our, uh, on our deck. So we went and we, we talked to VCs and did this uh, Sandhill Shuffle and all those things that you hear about. And it was just, nobody was interested in getting into ad tech. Uh, and on the side, we were raising friends and family. Um, and just through sort of luck of the draw, we got we got in touch with friends of friends who were more like family offices, but individuals who were angels. And we were able to get funding to up and running about a million and a half dollars at first to get and build the product. Uh, people believed in the idea and deep learning is still very hot and and it really is a fascinating and powerful technology. Uh, then finally, over the years, um, a small number of our angel investors were able to give us the funding to keep going until we were um, making a significant amount of revenue and and then we haven't taken any VC money
0: oh, at all. aren't you glad like everything happens for a reason How, I mean uh, then you get to moved, be your own yeah. board you don't have people to report into they're not telling you a direction to take the company that doesn't isn't in line with your values. there's so many reasons to, yeah. be happy that that happened.
1: There's a lot of pros. Uh, yeah. I would say if, you know, if they're entrepreneurs or, or potential entrepreneurs out there listening, it worked for us because I was a sort of a, a, a an industry of veteran and yes. I knew a lot of people already in our industry and I understood the business and we were, we were veterans at, the idea of business. I'd run pretty big teams with pretty big budgets, P&Ls and things like that. I did have my business degree. I had sort of all that skill set that I could get the company going and make good decisions. I had some nice advisors, which were really helpful. But... Um, when you're younger and you don't have those 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 tool sets, VCs are very helpful in that way.
0: So oh, for sure. Well, if they can provide a good board and be more strategic and and yeah. open up introductions for sure. But there's yeah. equally stories of people kind of being those um, VCs or board members who you're like scared to pick up the phone because they're going to be pissed off about you know the numbers or the direction or the lack of success. Um, how did you come up with the name Cognitive? what does it mean? So, I mean, I guess cognition. So
1: it's, it, you know, we're, we wanted it to be, we, we, our brand is, we want to be the smartest people in the room. We want to be the science of advertising. We're, we don't want to have smoke and mirrors. We don't want to be uh, a, a catchphrase. Uh, and cognitive um, was this, the idea of a brain that is what we're giving the computer the cognitive ability to be human-like yeah. and that was really something that we liked about amazing that, that, that the
0: amazing that the name was available because it's such it's well, such
1: a good name well we're technically cognitive.ai
0: oh so right.
1: yeah and and without the e at the end uh but somebody had already cognitive.com but you know in 2015.com wasn't cool anymore. So, you know, dot, dot AI was pretty good.
0: Yeah. And so who was your first big client that you landed and, you know, ones to re-up, I guess, because that is a, a metric to look at, not just, hey, we got them, but then they kind of kept with us.
1: One of our earliest clients was, uh, and we're not really allowed to talk publicly about them, but they were a very large uh, insurance company, which was really great for us. And um, we're really our technology was really proven to be the only one the the great part about that client relationship, which we still have to this day, um, was that they got exactly what we did. It we they wanted the advanced stuff that we were creating and they had a problem that nobody else could solve that our technology could solve, uh, which is incrementality, which is the idea that an advertiser, especially these big auto insurance companies have oversaturated the market. Everybody knows Geico. Everybody knows Progressive. Everybody knows State Farm. Everybody knows uh, Allstate. And they know all of their spokespeople and they know all of their catchphrases. So how do you spend your digital dollars in a way that um, is effective and efficient in that you're not going to show an ad to somebody who's already going to go fill out a quote. You want to show the ads to try to convince somebody that's not going to do that. That's the incremental you know, lift that we're trying to find. Mm. And only in our experience, deep learning and the way we use it to predict whether somebody's incremental or non-incremental has been able to work consistently and scale in real time. Everybody else just sort of throws things against the wall and has a hypothesis and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But our deep learning algorithms are customized to figure this out for this huge um, company. And they've they've really been a great partner for us.
0: That's incredible. And so how is it, Measurable for them, I guess through the back end, there's some way of saying this. This is where the the conversion happened.
1: Sure. So uh, we we generally are working on conversions that are online. So, in, for instance, in this with this insurance company, we uh, gather data based on the quote being filled out. Mm. Um, but our algorithms have worked well with. Uh, footfall traffic so you know sometimes you allow your phone to tell you where you are like with uber figuring out if somebody wanted to um, uh, store uh, using other parties data like uh, a catalina data will be able to anonymously show and connect we showed an ad to this this id and that id uh, bought that product in a store at like a walgreens or something like that so there's a lot of different ways to measure success digitally these days yeah. in an anonymous, non-personally identifiable right. way, which right. is really what fuels this. this
0: I like department. it. What fuels, yeah. what fuels you? I like it. That's right. nice, nice spin. Um, how have you been able to attract talent? I know you've got offices, two offices, right? New York, and, and you chose to be in our area. That's how we know each other, which is awesome. Bellevue. How, yeah. how, have you, how did you make that decision? And how has that strategy gone for you?
1: Our two main offices are New York City and Bellevue. Um, and actually what happened was we started because we're all from Maryland. Mark was still living in Maryland at the time that we started the company. So we started, and he had his own engineering resources that he knew of down there. And we started the engineering office in Maryland. In the end though, the talent that we needed to recruit, especially on the science and engineering side wasn't, we couldn't scale there. We had a hard time. We worked with um, uh, recruitment firms and things like that. And it just, we weren't getting the skill set we needed. One of our employees who is also a high school friend of Mark's, sorry, a college friend of Mark's was already working for us remotely in Bellevue. He'd always wanted to move out there. And we made the decision to move out there for a number of reasons. And, and as you well know, I think, you know, Seattle Bellevue area is a great area to attract top science and engineering talent and you know not just because amazon and facebook and google are all heavily recruiting there and microsoft of course which has always been out there um but because actually for us those big guys suck up a lot of voice in the talent pool But there's always going to be folks who don't want to work for those huge companies.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's where we really come in, especially because we're doing deep learning, which is the cool new thing. There's a lot of um, interest for us. We've always been able to get pretty good talent um, uh, through Fuel, of course, and um, just our own sort of network of people that we've hired that we really, really enjoy. And, And they really enjoy the Seattle area. So we're not looking at people who are gonna to move to New York or Silicon Valley or mm-hmm. whatever. They really are there because they like being in Seattle area for the outdoors pieces, for the lifestyle. And so we really like- Not not there. for
0: the drivers, not for the sidewalks.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Not yes. so no, the there's walk-in. a lot of
0: reasons to love Seattle, but how has it been for your team and for your company as far as engagement and remote work and yeah. um, even just revenues during COVID?
1: So that's that's an interesting part of our of the culture question. Okay, so we were always uh, two offices. We also have a third new office in Berkeley, California now for science and for research. But we were always two main offices, engineering and business. Um, And we always wanted to do something culturally to bring those two offices together as much as possible um, virtually. And this was before covid. So, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of right now is that we are uh, a finalist in um, the Digiday Work Life Awards for Most Collaborative Culture.
0: I oh, uh, love it.
1: Yeah, and I, that's, that came out of before COVID because we, we actually, first we had a culture uh, competition to say, how are we going to keep these two offices together virtually? What are we going to do? And somebody recommended that we should create uh, non-work houses like in Harry Potter. Like, is
0: that this house system?
1: Yeah, so we have a house system that everybody gets sorted into when they come. Uh, pretty randomly, mm-hmm. we try to evenly distribute the, the offices and geographies and genders and, 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 teams. and departments. Yeah, yeah, so that their, their inner team, their inner department, there's really, it's not about work. And um, they we've been competing for all six years of our, of our company in a house competition throughout the year with a big finale at the end of the year and prizes and cash wards and people take it very seriously. I
0: love it. How many people do you have? How many employees do you have now?
1: Well we're up to fifty now. So we Yeah, have, that's the perfect size. I was with, just
0: thinking like could that work on my team? We only have twenty three internal maybe
1: it works. It works really well with the smoke. You know, we, we, we've had four houses historically, um, uh, you know, and, and uh, I think up to like 30 people that worked with, we try to keep it to eight to 10 people a house. And now we have six houses. And this uh, is the coolest
0: idea. I mean, I might have to cop, I might have to call you and be like, tell me everything because I love it. We're really big on culture too. And I think that's, I love that idea.
1: it, It look, it goes back to our hope that we're developing high performance teams that are competitive. You know, we want people who like to win. We're a startup company. We need people who are driven to win in a competitive landscape. And so that's a part of the recruiting piece is like, hey, do you, are you a competitive person? Do you like to play games? Do you like to do these things? Yeah. And so. Um, and what are you measuring in the house through. system?
0: Like what, when you say people are get competitive, they get into it. Is it? Like what, give me an example of like the end of the year award based on what?
1: Uh, Well, we have every month we have a house competition and it's scored with points. I am the arbiter. I am the, like the, don't they call me Dumbledore. I don't participate in any of the houses, uh, but Mark leads one, Aaron leads one. We generally have one of our senior leaders lead one. That's actually part of our management. We have a lot of management training too. Uh, because we want all of our managers to be high performance managers, but also be very good at giving feedback and, and um, identifying whether people are going to be stars or are not good fits quickly, you know, able to give the feedback and all that, but also being able to be leaders without a true mandate, right? Like there's one thing that you learn from a lot of these books is that you can be given a title and everyone will follow your directions, but it doesn't mean you're a leader. And we want to make sure that people have the opportunity to show that they can be leaders also in a, in a non-determined uh, uh, way. So the house competitions every month can be, we, since we've been virtual, we could do um, ver- remote escape rooms. Uh, we do trivia competitions. We do... Like we just did one where I asked them to alter and create a fake origin story for the, the company. You know, they all know this origin story of Mark Aaron and I, and there's a little part in there where we go to our local deli in silver spring and we have sandwiches and that's sort of like the lore that we like to tell, which is true, but they had the opportunity, each team will go go off and write a two page story about the the real Version of cognitive. So we just like to keep it fun and light and, and easy. It's only about an hour, hour and a half a month. But what's happened over COVID is that we started having them spend half an hour a week together outside of any work related stuff, but during the day, half hour coffee just to hang out and talk and connecting all of our people across teams that way has just been better for communication a lot of our a lot of our competition is about effective communication like you know, there's this thing called beat the bomb and you have to, one person has to give you an instruction. Another person has to follow the instruction. And there's, there's all these ways that we, we try to create really good. I
0: want to like cut comfort. paste and just copy it. I absolutely yeah, it's, it's love not, this. And it's I, hope not people, science. No, but I hope people are listening to this that are considering working at cognitive because obviously I know the, I know your business, I know you, but. Through this podcast, I'm like, I want to work there. It actually sounds like an incredible place to work and an incredible foundational leadership team. Um, I'm glad that I'm having you on the podcast because I feel like I'm learning more. I'm going to go back to my team and be like, recruit even harder for cognitive. Everybody well, should want to work look, there. It's,
1: you know, it's, it's, I, I love it because I want everyone to be productive and really good. But on the other side of it, from a pure business perspective, I need people to stay. And I need people to be productive and, and, and get us over that goal line. Yeah. And we do not have turnover. We do not have a, yeah. A i I've problem. not
0: heard about any, any real turnover at all. Yeah. So that makes, that makes sense to me. And so how are you setting yourself up for like a good week? Are you, do you have rituals in your life around, um, I guess, productivity or even, even deep thinking time or relaxation time?
1: I, am one of those people who is always on, uh, I, even, even though I said, I started this, Hey, I like to do nothing. I do. I do. And I think that is, I, if there's any ritual for me, if, if things have gotten, you know, a, a, a friend of mine just asked me the other day, she's the CEO of a really new startup, like two or three people. And when you're a startup of a small company like that, you have six jobs. I mean, all the jobs that the other people are not doing, you're doing. So, you know, you're the HR person, your finance, you're, you're, you're the strategy, Everything. your product. Oh, of
0: course. Sometimes your you're recruiter, so. your fundraiser. Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, you have to switch between those roles instantly all day long. And that can be really hard and really tiring. So it's definitely important for me to have downtime uh, on the weekends to, you know, not do work. Uh, I'm always available to answer a question or to think about something quickly, but I really do try to take my downtime on the weekends. And then during the week, I'm, um, I'm where I need to be doing what I need to do.
0: Yeah. And so the ultimate question for you is what fuels you?
1: I, I'm a competitive person. I like interesting uh, challenges and I like solving problems. I am an engineer at heart. Like, even though I probably would have enjoyed college more if I was a history major or poli-sci like my father. But uh, I really am an engineer at heart. I like to solve problems. Um, that, is, that is an annoyance. Sometimes with my friends, when they have a problem, I just tell them what I think the solution right. is. They don't course. want to hear that, you know? Yeah,
0: they're like, I just want you to um, sit there and listen. That's a very hard thing to do.
1: Yeah, but I, I love, uh, that, that drives me. You give me a problem. I, I love figuring out the, uh, the answer
0: to it. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.